Traveling the quickest way between two points doesn't give an author like Paul Theroux much to write about. Coming up, he tells why he took a road trip from Cape Cod to L.A. in the middle of the pandemic. What you discover in America is great differences, cultural differences, political differences, differences in ways of solving problems. For travel writer Don George, looking at his own neighborhood with the eye of a traveler helped him deal with the wanderlust that a lockdown can stir up. The closer I looked, the more I saw, the more the world gave back to me because I was appreciating it. Meanwhile, Lawrence Brown has had to rethink a few things since moving to America from England, like what constitutes a long road trip. Brits think 100 miles is a long way, and Americans think 100 years is a long time. Come along as we take a closer look at our American home in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Visit Europe in 2022. Rick Steves' Europe bus tours are designed to economically and efficiently share our love of Europe through my favorite places, people, and experiences. With small groups, strict health and safety protocols, great guides, and more than 40 itineraries, a Rick Steves Europe tour just might be the perfect fit for your travel dreams. Learn more at ricksteves.com. How have the pandemic's travel restrictions affected how you see the place where you live? Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, Don George reveals how pandemic wanderlust forced him to take a closer look at his California home. And British expat Lawrence Brown shares his happiest surprises about living in the American Midwest. But first, Paul Theroux returns to tell us about an ambitious road trip he took in the middle of the pandemic. He's known for writing about his close-to-the-ground travels across Africa, Asia, and Latin America. In recent years, Paul Theroux has written about what he found on the back roads of the American Deep South and in Mexico. Paul joins us from his home base in Hawaii now to tell us what he observed on a cross-country drive from Massachusetts to Los Angeles as the pandemic spooked the nation. Paul, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you once again, Rick. You know, you're just such a traveling inspiration. I mean, to celebrate turning 80 as if to refuse to be kept down by this pandemic, you decided to take a road trip all across the United States. What was your route and why didn't you just fly? I mean, it was it was a time when people were not going out and about because everything was desolate and it was considered dangerous. Well, that's true. And people were saying, don't do it. But I, I hate planes. We all have to take them. But if, if a plane can be avoided, I'll do it. I'll drive or take a train. I had an ambition. So my papers are in the Huntington Library in Pasadena, California, a place called San Marino, actually. Mm-hmm. The Huntington Library and Gardens are one of the wonders of the United States. They also have my archive and the archive of many other writers. So I had a shipment of of papers. I had 11 boxes of papers that needed to be delivered. And I asked them, could they send a a truck to pick them up or, I don't know, a courier? And they said, because of the pandemic, there are too many protocols. They weren't going to do it. Maybe next year, which means I don't know, you know, because we don't know the pandemic is so vague. So I said, well, what if I rented a car? And drove them. Uh. I'll I'll put them in the back of the car and and, and delivered them. First, they said, are you sure you want to do this? And I said, yeah. They said, if you insure them, and if you're sure you want to do it, that would be great. That solves the problem. Mm -hmm. So I rented a car in Boston, Massachusetts. I drove to the Cape. I loaded up the boxes. It completely filled a Jeep compass. There wasn't a bit of freeboard in the car. And I also put in a lot of food, beer, wine, 
food that could be microwaved, because I assume the restaurants would not be open. A lot of hard-boiled eggs. I hard-boiled a lot of eggs and put them in a bag. I had a little cooler. So I had all, all my food, drink, water, the papers, clothes, all my stuff. And I set off early one morning. It was actually the day before Thanksgiving and set off down. And I must say, the early part of the trip, I've done so many times, uh, uh, Boston to New York is not interesting. It's kind of a speedway. It's sort of a mm-hmm. racetrack. Then you're on the New Jersey Turnpike. That's another speedway. But as soon as you get off the New Jersey Turnpike into Delaware, Baltimore, Washington, it gets interesting. And when you're south of Washington or out on Route 81, then you're in the Shenandoah Valley, you're the Blue Ridge Mountains. It's absolutely fantastic. So the first day I stopped just outside of Washington in, in sort of northern Virginia, and then I took 81 down to Nashville, well, to Knoxville, and then you go over to Nashville. The second day was Thanksgiving. And they say, you know, Thanksgiving traffic is terrible, but it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Because of the pandemic, the traffic was very light. And I stopped along the way in Nashville, and then the next I went into um, Arkansas and actually to an interesting place. Over the border of Arkansas, I came to Salisaw, Oklahoma. So the trip across the states was also a way of revisiting places that I'd been before and sizing them up, seeing what direction is the country going? Who's wearing a mask? Who's not wearing a mask? What are the COVID cases like? And I also wanted to see a couple of places that I had always longed to see. One was Salisaw. Salisaw is where the Joad family comes from in Grapes of Wrath. But they come from this particular town that Steinbeck wrote about. The Salisaw in Grapes of Wrath is different from the actual Salisaw. But the other local hero in Salisaw is Pretty Boy Floyd. Pretty Boy Floyd was a bank robber, and uh, he's kind of a local, not a local hero, he was a, one of the most, most wanted. He died in a hail of bullets, and he's buried in Salisaw. There's also a casino in Salisaw. So I stayed there, I, I walked around, and so the cross-country trip was also visiting a spot that I had read about and wanted to see. Paul Theroux describing his latest cross-country road trip driving solo from Cape Cod to Southern California in the height of the pandemic right now on Travel with Rick Steves. So the next place I wanted to see was on Route 66, old Route 66. It's called Tucumcari. So Tucumcari, you go off the road, you're going down Route 40, Interstate 40. It's like a, a museum, a living, breathing museum of old usable motels, $29 a night and gas stations, and the way things looked before I-40 was built, when Route 66 was the way west. And that was a thrill, too, to be in Tukumkari. There's a museum there. And the, and the old gas stations are still pumping mm. gas. The motels are still usable. And there's a diner, you know, and all that sort of thing. But it looks like it's from straight out of the 19, late 1940s, 1950s. And then I pushed on. I mean, uh, so it was a wonderful trip. I did it in six days doing 500 miles a day. 500 miles a day, that's, that's a lot of driving. He's famous for his landmark books taken from traveling across Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, Paul Theroux is telling us about his six-day road trip across the USA in the middle of the COVID pandemic. His latest novel is set at his home base on Oahu's North Shore. It's called Under the Wave at Waimea. We have a link to Paul's recent interview on that topic at ricksteves.com slash radio. So, Paul, you drove basically, well, you, you drove from coast to coast during the depth of the pandemic. 
Can you draw any conclusions about how our country really is uh, regional and have deep differences as we treated or lived with COVID? What did you experience as you drove through red states and blue states? Well, some places, Oklahoma, for example, was not a, a state where I saw a lot of masks. Texas, not a lot of masks. Uh, New Mexico, very masked. Tennessee, that was sort of some had it, some didn't. Mm -hmm. Every state seemed to have a different ethic, but culturally all states are different. And there are regions and areas in each state too that are different. The greatest experience an American can have is not necessarily going to Istanbul or Venice, but just getting in a car and driving through a rural part of the United States or a place that you might always wanted to have seen. So what you discover in America is great differences cultural differences, political differences, differences in ways of solving problems. But also some states are more infected than others too. But I think the look of it, the beauty of the landscape, of our landscape and mainland United States is something to behold. People praise other people. They praise great rivers in Asia or rivers in Africa. Actually, the Mississippi River is a powerful man, the Old Man River. It's a really amazing thing to travel. It's a very moving experience when you're traveling cross-country and you cross the Mississippi and you actually see it flowing south, often with tugs and, and barges on it going, you know, going south or, or north, as the case may be. So it's an eye-opener. And when you travel in daylight from Boston to Los Angeles, you're getting a panning shot of the United States. It's like a documentary film. You're seeing the whole thing by daylight, every inch of it in daylight. At nightfall, you stop at a motel microwave your food, which is what I did. And at dawn the next morning, you set off again and the documentary continues and you're, and you're seeing it, you know, in sunlight. It actually was in West Texas, it was snowing and it was very, very hot in other places. So there's also the great meteorological differences too. But it's a thrill. I found a great thrill, the road trip, which is a cure for the pandemic too, because I didn't feel, mm -hmm. I, I never got tested. I, you know, I didn't have to go through any protocols. I had been tested before I left, so I knew I wasn't infected, but I was careful. But the great freedom of the road, the proud highway that Hunter Thompson called it, is something that I, I crave to do again. You know, Paul Theroux, when I, when I think about how prolific you've been writing over 50 books, you really have to constantly be stoking your, your battery or filling your tank with travel experiences because you can't produce all of these books without actually spending a lot of time on the road. Do you have that sense, even when you're taking a road trip across the United States, that you have a discipline, you got to be uh, have a regimen of, of writing and, and taking notes and then drawing from that for future projects? Uh, how are you able to write so thoughtfully and deeply about so many places without being on the road all the time and taking notes? You know, one of the great things about traveling fr from cross-country is you see how beautiful the rest stops are, the rest stops in Virginia, the rest stops in Tennessee and Arkansas and Oklahoma. When you stop, I'm a professional writer. I haven't had writer's block much in my life. I don't teach creative writing. I never have. I don't have another job. I'm purely a self-supporting independent writer. If someone said, I turned down no reasonable offers of, of writing. It's my living. It's my income. And I think that when you travel, you know this as a writer yourself. You travel for inspiration as well as being enlightened. And often you come back from a trip with an idea. D you know what I'm saying, don't you? Oh, yeah. That the experience of travel, like traveling in Mexico 
I was writing about Mexicans. I wanted to destroy the stereotype of Mexicans and feel how complicated. I mean, the immigrants aren't Mexicans. They're people from Central America. They're from China, Syria, the Congo, Nigeria. You know, you name it. Uh, when I came back from my Mexico trip, although I was writing about Mexico, I had ideas for my novel, Under the Wave at Maimea. I met surfers in Mexico. So it, there's a kind of cross-fertilization between travel and, and, and fiction that has served me my whole life. Yeah. And you finally got to Los Angeles. You turned in your archives or your papers to the archives, and then you made it back home to Hawaii. What was it like finally getting to Hawaii in the middle of the lockdown? In order to come to Hawaii, you need to be tested. Before the pandemic, Hawaii had 10 million tourists a year. That's a lot of tourists. That's a lot of people. During the pandemic, the numbers dropped. And people began to experience a Hawaii they hadn't seen or felt for maybe 20 years or more, 30 years. Light traffic, empty beaches. It was really quite lovely. Now the numbers are going up. We have more traffic and more people on the beaches. But coming back to Hawaii is a thrill for me. I love Hawaii. And so I was, you know, happy to be here. And uh, uh, they've got a very good grip on the pandemic. Well, Paul, I'm glad that you made it in one piece and that you had the adventure while a lot of us were dreaming about our travels. You were out there still making more travel memories and getting more uh, material that you can draw from as you continue your career as a prolific travel writer. Paul Thoreau, the new book is Under the Wave at Waimea. Thanks so much, and let's stay in touch. Happy travels. Thank you, Rick. Up next, a world traveler discovers something about himself by having to stay close to home during the pandemic. And the host of Lost in the Pond reveals a few surprises after moving to America from England. Plus, listeners share road trip haiku they wrote just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. With more than 90 countries visited under his belt and lots of yearly trips for National Geographic, travel writer Don George was ready for another year of globetrotting when the coronavirus shut down our travel plans. Within the first few months of lockdown, Don explored his home turf in the San Francisco Bay Area and discovered dimensions of his own neighborhood he'd never actually appreciated. Normally overrun tourist sites that he'd ignored in the past now became empty pilgrimage sites he relished. With a new set of eyes, he began to see the world around him and his wanderlust in a new light. Don joins us now to discuss a series of essays he's written in quarantine which he's collected in an ebook. It's called Wanderlust in the Time of Coronavirus, Dispatches from a Year of Traveling Close to Home. Don, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you, Rick. It's wonderful to be here, as it's always. It's always nice to see you. We go back a long, long time. You used to be the, uh, the big overseeing editor at uh, Lonely Planet, didn't you? Right. Global travel editor at Lonely Planet. Global travel editor. That Lonely Planet was just a gangly company with hundreds of titles and not any one dominant writer. So you kind of held right. it together, didn't you? I did my best. <laughs> <laughs> so, Don, the book's called Wanderlust in the Time of Coronavirus. And in it, you write about the church as wanderlust, you know, travel as a religion. How so? Rick, all of my life, I think I've been working towards this realization that for me, travel really is my personal religion. When I get out into the world, it's a sacred place for me. And what I'm trying to do with my writing is, is inform people and educate them about all the diverse wonders of our planet, all the different precious pieces of landscape and culture and creation. And I think that good travel paves the way to peace and understanding in the world. And for me, that's yeah. a very sacred mission. So that's 
That's my church of wanderlust. And I've been thinking about that a lot, too. I've, I've even been writing essays and giving talks about the, the road is church, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, certainly the road is school, and the road uh, is yes. uh, vacation, and the road is playground. Regardless of your faith or lack of faith, you can see this planet as a beautiful creation, and it's interwoven, and, and we're all one. That's a, a highly religious sort of uh, approach to travel, and right now, you can't go to church. Exactly. That was that was <laughs> that's been very challenging. That church was denied me. But you found and church at home. I found church at home. I found religion. Tell me about at it, brother. Home. Yeah, exactly. I normally travel half of the year. When I realized I wasn't going to be able to travel half of the year, I began to wander in literally in my own backyard, looking at the freesia and the persimmon trees and going, this is amazing. I've never really paid attention to these before. But, you know, maybe you thought you had to go to like to Japan. Your wife is exactly. Japanese, right? And you go to Japan right, every exactly. year. And that's where you have the, the Zen garden. And that's where you mm-hmm. have the single candle. <laughs> and that's where you have the cherry blossoms. That's right. But you got those things right in the Bay Area. Well, then I went to my local park. My little tiny town has a beautiful park, which I hadn't ever really appreciated. I went there in April, and the cherry trees were blooming. They were blooming just like they had been in Kyoto the year before. And I thought, oh, wow, there are wonders right here. And then, of course, I was transported to Kyoto by looking at the cherry blossoms there. It's all around us, right? So really, the wanderlust, the world is all around us, and we just have to find it in ourselves and then in the the immediate surroundings. Okay, so I've been working on something I call a traveler's mindset. Mm. You can travel, and if you have the right traveler's mindset, you have good travels. If you can't travel, you can employ that traveler's mindset at home and enjoy the wonders and the beauties and the benefits of travel without leaving home. What Absolutely. is, to you, a traveler's mindset? For me, it's, it's a combination of great curiosity and respect and appreciation and just a sense of wonder about things. Respect. See, I didn't have that on my list, and I should. For me, ah. a, you know, because a traveler's mindset, I've seen good and I've seen bad travelers, in my est- estimate, in the same place. Indeed. One having a life-changing experience and the other one pissed off because the service is slow, you know? Right. Uh, so right. There's, there's this attitude, respect, curiosity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find it's a, sort of an eagerness to get out of our comfort zone. Right. To be humbled in our ethnocentrism. Exactly. And you know, I've said this a lot, Rick, and I think we both share this feeling that I lived in Paris a long time ago, right out of college, and I learned right away then some Americans would walk into a French restaurant expecting the waiter to be surly and nasty and that they were going to have a terrible time. And indeed, they had a terrible time. Yeah. I would walk into a French <laughs> restaurant, making a fool of myself, speaking French, but having enthusiasm and wonder and excitement. And they would respond so wonderfully to that. And they would say, it's so nice to have you here, monsieur, and let us take care of you. And yeah. so the attitude that I brought to the experience absolutely determined what experience I had. So we've got this traveler's mindset. Now, the, the challenge for us when we cannot travel, of course, we will be traveling, is to employ that mindset here. And, and that, I would right. say, is, is the essence of this wanderlust in a time of coronavirus. So what are you doing concretely to employ your traveler's mindset, those points we just mentioned, without getting on an airplane, just by taking a bike ride or taking a walk or visiting with your new grandchild? One of my epic trips was to walk across the Golden Gate Bridge, which I had never done in 40 years of living in the Bay Area, I'd never actually walked across the bridge. There you go. It's an entirely different bridge when you walk across it. You realize it was built by human beings, which is astonishing. You get halfway across the bridge and you look at the rivets and the girders and you go, some person stood here when the bridge wasn't even finished 
and they pounded this thing right in. Yes. That's incredible. The other place I went that I would like to tell you about is Muir Woods. I don't know if you've ever been to Muir Woods, but what a world-class wonder that is. It's an hour from my house. I'd never been there because I was too busy you know, exploring world-class wonders on the yeah. other side of the planet. Right. Suddenly, there it is. And I realize why people travel halfway around the world to come to Muir Woods, because it's really a spectacular place. So I found my, my Zen, my forest bathing I got to do in Muir Woods, and it was truly a healing and transformative kind of experience. It was just wonderful. Now I've been back three times since then. Travel writer Don George shares observations from staying close to home in a series of essays he's written in his ebook called Wanderlust in the Time of Coronavirus. His website is don-george.com. He's joining us from his home studio in Piedmont, California. You know, we're going to be able to travel again someday soon, but in the meantime, I'm hoping there's what I call a corona bonus, and we'll, we'll come out of this time <laughs> having a better appreciation of what is right here. You've got a particular love of Japanese uh, culture. There's a meditative, spiritual beauty, oneness, simplicity. Uh, I don't know. There's just all these things that we aspire to in our fast and crazy material world that is kind of uh, the norm in Japan. Can you apply some of the attentiveness that you have to little tasks and daily routines that that your wife is probably so second nature about. What are some examples of that here? Well, even just pouring myself a cup of tea, feeling the warmth of the water and the tea in the bowl, inhaling the aroma of the tea as it comes up, watching the steam as it sort of funnels into the air and dissipates, just really paying attention to that closely makes me marvel at what an amazing experience having a cup of tea is. Or in Ethiopia, it could be a cup of coffee. I was just seeing the coffee uh, ritual, the coffee ceremony in Ethiopia while I was in Addis Ababa. And man, oh man, that gives uh, drinking a cup of joe a whole different dimension. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, and in Japan, you can go to a half-hour-long tea ceremony. The end result is still just a bowl of tea. Yeah. But... Your whole life has been transformed in that half hour. Yeah. I mean, because I, you know, when I go to Vienna, everybody raves about the coffee. The coffee is no better than our coffee, I don't think. It's just the Mm. appreciation, the ritual, the tradition that goes into it, the surroundings, the ambiance, all of that. Ambiance. There's that terroir, that cultural terroir. (laughs) Exactly. That's perfect. (laughs) Hey, Don, you wrote in your book, I've learned the closer you look, the more the world bestows upon you. That for any traveler anywhere, think about it. The closer you look, the more the world bestows upon you. What's an example? Well, even just looking in my yard at my garden, shortly after the pandemic, I began to walk around my yard and I'd say, well, there's a lot of bright flowers here. And then I'd look more closely and say, oh, there's a freesia there. It's a yellow freesia. And then I'd bend down and I'd smell it and I'd go, oh my gosh, there's this amazing yellow freesia with this incredible bouquet. And look, there's another little bud sprouting and there's another little bud sprouting. And so, The closer I looked, the more I saw, the more the world gave back to me because I was appreciating it. And And you have to take the time. It's not just a a bucket list thing, check, I did that. And you have to let the moment breathe. Exactly. And that's why you and I both talk about slow travel a lot. Just slowing down, slowing down. Let's do one thing today and just do it really, really well. It's a challenge. We know that just by promoting our tours. You know, you can sell more tours by promising more in a day. But you can't have more time or experience in a day just by promising more. You want to use that thoughtfully, and there's a nice balance. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by travel writer and editor Don George, and he's turned his restlessness in quarantine times into a new appreciation of travel closer to home. 
Don's an editor-at-large for National Geographic Traveler. He hosts the National Geographic Life series. And we're discussing his latest ebook, Wanderlust in a Time of Coronavirus, Dispatches from a Year of Traveling Close to Home. Our email is radio at ricksteves.com, and Jesse has emailed us uh, from Honolulu. Jesse writes, I had planned to spend three months traveling in Italy with a particular focus on its culinary traditions. Unfortunately, I was scheduled to depart in March of last year and had to cancel the trip. I read most of Paul Theroux's travel books during the next few months and was able to learn about faraway places and faraway people through his writing. There is a good way to travel. Read great travel books. Wonderful way to travel. And Paul Theroux is a very good guide. You write about that in your book, Traveling by the Mind. You know, there's no jet lag. It's almost free. And there are great books that help you travel. Absolutely. What's a hard example from you about a, a movie or a documentary or, or a TV show or a book that you've read that takes you traveling? I recently read a really beautiful book by Pico Iyer. It's about autumn in Japan. It's a really, really beautiful book. And it moved me greatly. And then I read a, a novel recently by Isabel Allende called A Long Petal of the Sea about Spain and Chile. And it's also incredibly, it's a work of fiction, but her ability to evoke places is so fantastic that I felt like I was right there with her traveling in Spain, traveling in Chile. Well, you can keep your wanderlust alive by being open to this through travel, through talking to other travelers, through books, through movies, through listening to music, connecting with friends. You talk about gardening, sowing and reaping. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's something that I really had never taken the time to do, to start planting things in the garden, and I can't wait for them to come up. And it's that whole sense of growth and renewal that I normally find when I go to Japan, for example. Now I'm getting it at home, which is quite wonderful. That is very radical. <laughs> I, I mean, it really is. Think of what joys you get overseas and find a way to have those joys here. Another thing yeah. you talk about is time, gratitude, and the importance of dreams. You know, the gift of time, that is something that is really important. What have your thoughts been as a traveler stuck at home in that regard? I've been astonished by how long every day has become. When I'm not commuting to an office, I'm not going to meet friends for coffee or dinner. Every day has taken on two days worth of time, it feels like, which means that I can do things that I don't normally do. I, I would go through my old journals. I'd look through old photographs. I would look at my little knickknacks from around the world, a bowl from Japan or a plate from Greece or a little stone moai from Easter Island. And I would remember all the wonderful travels associated with those little things that surround me in my study. And what's not to like about taking this as a little sabbatical from our workaholism, you know? I mean, exactly. I, I think I just love my work so much. I work all the time. And right. this is really therapy for a workaholic. It's, it's a, a good chance to realize there's more to life than increasing its speed. I think it's, to me, it's God's way of telling me to just slow down, you know? Exactly. And the more you slow down, the more, more richness you find everywhere. And I think I'll apply that when I get back out in the world again. I'm going to slow down more and really savor every moment and every encounter, every opportunity the planet presents me. Another thing you talk about is focusing on being grateful. Mm. Tell me about that. I just think gratitude is at the bottom of, of everything. It's the heart of my life at this point. I'm grateful. For, these days, I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for my health. I'm grateful for all the workers out there in the world who are keeping us going and finding vaccines and distributing them. And so many people have worked tirelessly and selflessly in the past year to get us where we are now. 
So I just think gratitude informs everything I do. It sort of comes up yeah. from my toes to my head and out into the universe. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful for you, Rick. I'm grateful for... Well, thank yeah. you. But I think gratitude is also a little bit hollow if we don't uh, also recognize how privileged we are. Absolutely. And then how a lot of people will never see their name on a plane ticket. There's some work that needs to be done. And now that we're all at home, I think I, I think we're going to come out of this with another corona bonus, and that is recognizing that there's a, a lot of equity we've got to deal with in our own society so that we can all embrace the world like we travelers are so enthusiastic about. I agree. I actually wrote in one of my essays in the, in the e-book that if, we've, if we treated some of the other epidemics that we have in the world, like poverty or ignorance, we could really go a long way to see the way the, the globe kind of came together to combat this disease. Yeah. Why don't we combat some of the social diseases that we have we out there? We could do that. We could do that. If we get something, a lesson out of this whole coronavirus thing, it would give it at least a bit of a positive spin. Uh, I, I, my fear is we're going to fall right back into our frantic, materialistic, uh, greedy ways. But we've learned we're all in this together, and the, the challenges that confront us in the future are going to be impervious to conventional weaponry. They're going to be blind to walls. It's going to take embracing science. It's going to be working with other nations. And it's going to be realizing that there's no more win-lose. It's got to be win-win. If we win and south of the border, there's still the pandemic raging. We haven't won. Right, exactly. And I, I love what you just said. And I think that we have to make sure that we continue to change and think of the world as one planet. We're all one tribe. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Don George. His book is Wanderlust in the Time of Coronavirus, dispatches from a year of traveling close to home. Don's website is don-george.com. And if you want to learn about how to get his book, you can go there. Don, you talked about an epiphany under a cherry tree, uh, reflections on Earth Day. Tell me about that epiphany. I was looking for a cherry tree because I was supposed to be in Japan leading a tour. And I wasn't. I was home. And that morning I thought, you know, I'm going to find a cherry tree somewhere around here. And I stumbled up to my local park and there were three beautiful cherry blossoms. And I just sat there in wonder under the cherry boughs, looking up at the beautiful blossoms against the blue sky. And in one amazing moment, I was transported back a year earlier to Kyoto when I'd been on the philosopher's path in Kyoto, the beautiful cherry blossom framed philosopher's path, looking up at pink blossoms and a blue sky beyond them, looking exactly the same as that moment in my hometown now. And I just was transported to Japan. In that moment, I felt like I was surrounded by Japanese people. I could hear Japanese. I could see the vendors selling cherry blossom scented ice cream. I just felt totally immersed in Japan. And there were a few precious moments when my hometown, Piedmont, and Kyoto became one in the same. And it was the most amazing epiphany that Japan is all around me. Japan is inside me. I just have to find it. Don George, you are an inspiration. I love talking with you and, and enthusing with you about the beauties <laughs> and the importance of travel. Thanks so much for joining us, and uh, happy travels, uh, even while we're just staying home for a little while. Thank you. Sometimes Travel with Rick Steves listeners take us along on a road trip. These folks worked up an appetite and sent us a haiku they wrote about it. Marjorie Huntoff of Portland, Oregon, wrote this haiku while looking out the window of a train rolling across Montana. Lone brown calf among a pasture of white cattle. Happy little burgers. 
Elena and Kathy Orban from Claremore, Oklahoma, wrote this one about eating in green country. Lunch in Enola. Graham's makes the best hamburgers. Oklahoma Dive. And Neil Ruddy of Carlisle, Iowa, has a different idea about what tastes good on a drive. Biscuits and sausage and Grandma Kuski's cookies are the best road food. There's a lot to be gained from viewing the world's art masterpieces in person instead of just going online. We'll explore that in just a bit. But first, the host of the popular Lost in the Pond YouTube series tells us what he's come to notice about America since moving here from England. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I've found a great way to learn more about your own country is to leave it. From a distance, the everyday things you might take for granted can become curiosities. After Lawrence Brown married his American wife, they moved from his native England to her home turf in Indiana. They live in Chicago now, where Lawrence examines the differences between our two countries on his YouTube channel. It's called Lost in the Pond. Lawrence is back with us again on Travel with Rick Steves to look at some of the things that have surprised him about America. Thanks for having me, Rick. What are some happy surprises that you've found that, that you've talked about on your YouTube channel uh, as you get used to America? Whenever I get asked that question, the first thing that springs to mind is the national park system of this country, because obviously the land here is has such a diversity to it, right across from the Appalachian region, right over the Great Plains, through to the Rockies and the Sierra Nevada. To me, that's that's something that you don't have in Britain. Don't get me wrong, we do have um, you know a diversity of land, but it's just nothing on the scale, the grand scale of what it is here in the United States. And the fact that there was the movement to uh, nationally protect a lot of those wildlife areas is fascinating for the public to use. That's great to think that our park system could inspire other countries to take care of their, their vast expenses of natural wonder. And what's something else that you thought was kind of a, a happy discovery as you got to know the United States? Uh, I think that, uh, you know, I talked about the diversity of land there, but that also goes hand in hand to some extent with the diversity of climate. Now, don't get me wrong, I live in Chicago, so sometimes that climate can be quite overbearing in terms of winter weather and things of that nature. But uh, you get all manner of different types of weather. Um, and I find that kind of fascinating, especially, you know, out on the West Coast or in, indeed in your neck of the woods, um, you get yeah. weather that's a bit more similar to Britain. Yeah, and I've learned a lot in England that you just face the weather and you go out and have a good time and the weather will change four or five times a day and you just got to have the right attire. Uh, one thing that frustrates me when I'm in England is you got to pay to go to the toilet all the time. Yeah, it's a very good point, uh, especially in, of course, public toilets, we should say. And um, I think that's something that's particularly true of places like London, but uh, for sure you will experience that. And Americans who I talk to about this concept look at me as if I'm making the entire thing up. Because uh, it is, I mean, it can seem strange, I think, especially to a country that sort of values its its liberties, having to put a, a you know, a 25 cent coin in just to go to the toilet might seem a, a little alien. So we should we should uh, appreciate the fact that we have a little a little more liberty than Britain has in that regard. In that regard, yes. What about what about free refills on drinks in restaurants? Well, that's certainly an alien concept in Britain. Um, that was when I got here that it sort of blew my mind at first. Um, but then I thought that makes sense. You know, it makes sense for America to have free refills in, in many odd ways. You know, you'd see routinely, I think, people having kind of a 16-ounce pop. Uh, this is where I lived in Indiana. 
and then finishing it off and going back and filling it up again. And that it was at that point where I saw too many people do that, that I, I realized I have to give up pop. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep doing that too. I remember going to Starbucks and different places in Europe and they didn't have the, the venti, you know, the, the extra large coffee. It just wasn't what people would want to buy. But America loves the, the big gulp approach to things, I guess. What about litter and graffiti? How, how would you compare that between America and Britain? It's a it's a tough one, that, because I think that, you know, if you look at the countryside of Britain, you don't really think of litter or anything like that. But when I lived in my hometown of Grimsby or just sort of built up populated areas, litter was something that you would you would see here and there. In fact, since I left, there's been a problem with something called fly tipping, which is where people are, are dumping all of their trash into sort of abandoned areas because the local councils aren't picking up the trash slash rubbish. Um, in a timely manner. Whereas here, it's quite rare, I think, to see mountains of litter and things like that. It's almost quite, it has a a cleanliness to it, uh, the streets of the US, or at least the streets I've seen. I remember saying this, though, on one of my videos, and a number of people underneath were quite proudly touting their uh, litter-laden towns. So um, if you generalize, you'll get it wrong somewhere. What are a couple of things that you'd see here that you kind of would go, no, nah, we'd never see that back at home? Um, there's certain types of uh, animals that you wouldn't see. Um, so, for instance, last winter, I encountered my first coyote here in Chicago, the last place I'd expect. It was trapped between two fences. And once it got out, I just all I could think was, oh, that's that's adorable. And people told me later on that, well, they're not necessarily adorable, but Um, You can believe that if you want, Mr. British Man. We're talking with British import Lawrence Brown right now on Travel with Rick Steves. His YouTube channel takes an entertaining look at the differences he's observed between America and England since he moved from jolly old England to the Midwest over a decade ago. You can check him out on YouTube. His channel is Lost in the Pond. When I travel, a lot of times I, I notice the absence of things that I didn't know was kind of an option. I've been in countries where there's no electrical wires overhead. They're all underground. I've been driving in countries where there's no billboards. And then I get back home and electrical wires everywhere and billboards on the freeways become more annoying. How how do billboards compare in the United States and Britain? So in Britain, you're really only going to see billboards kind of in populated towns in the downtown area, things like that. You're not going to see them on the motorway. Uh, But here in most of the United States, with the exception of, think of two or three states, um, they are completely legal and you will see them quite uh, consistently as you're driving around. They have all manner of different kinds of messages. But the I think the chief ones, at least that I would see in Indiana, are healthcare related, uh, lawyer uh, related or law related or some sort of religious message. Lawrence, when we think about Britain and when we compare it to the United States, one thing is certainly the case. Distances are huge in the United States compared to what you're accustomed to back in Britain. That's right. I mean, it it calls to mind the phrase, you know, the biggest difference between Britain and America is that Brits think 100 miles is a long way and Americans think 100 years is a long time. And it's it's so true on that first part, because when I lived in Britain, I used to think that a trip from London to Paris was quite far uh, to the extent that I never really took that trip. When I moved to the United States, I did a similar distance on a routine basis from Indianapolis to Chicago and think nothing of it now. 
And so if I were to move back to Britain, I would happily make that journey uh, consistently, I think, and uh, see more of Europe because it's just opened up my perspective of just really how small um, in terms of area Britain is. We have to remember, in fact, there are 11 states in the United States that have an area greater than the entire United Kingdom. And the United Kingdom has wonderful motorways where you can get around in a hurry. So all you got to do is uh, jump on the motorway and you can get to the other side of that country remarkably efficiently. One thing I'm struck by in my travels is in England, it's there's a little more formality, whereas in America, we sort of pride ourselves on being casual and informal and on a first-name basis in a hurry. How does that strike you as a, a Brit who's adopted America as your home country? Well, it probably starts at school, doesn't it? Because, you know, we as school children, usually anyway, wear school uniforms right across the country. And that sort of instills this sense of, you know, regimented way of doing things. Whereas in the United States, of course, most schools don't opt for that. You'll have kids coming to school in khakis and things of that nature. So it starts then. Yes, it really only kind of um, goes on into uh, the rest of society. And yeah, it, it sort of, it did stand out to me, but in a good way, because I think that I myself have kind of a, kind of a casual nature about myself. Um, even, even though I was raised in that British sort of mentality. So that's kind of a relief. You enjoy it then uh, as a Brit who can let your guard down and just be kind of casual. It is. Yeah. I imagine that if I was doing this interview sort of 15 years ago, I might be I might be dressed up for the occasion, even though this is just radio. Uh, whereas today, I'm simply wearing uh, jeans and a shirt and, you know, some socks. <laughs> you, you know, when I hear the Star Spangled Banner or God Bless America, when I see the stars and stripes blowing in the wind, I get, I get excited. I get touched. I get emotional. Um, what's the British sort of romantic take on, on national anthems and, and the Union Jack? I think we have a similar take, uh, as much as we might want to say that we don't, because you only have to be around England at the time of a World Cup, for example, in soccer, when our team is in there and is trying its best to, to win that competition. The, the whole country tends to get very patriotic about it. But it does have to be, usually it has to be accompanied by an event like that. And I, I think this is one thing I will say, that standing for the national anthem at every single game, it, it does happen, but it's not something that's widely expected like it is here. It is part of a ritual of a baseball game that you sing the national anthem and then it's play ball. It's a long way from good old Grimsby to living in the USA. Lawrence Brown hosts a series of videos on YouTube comparing the differences he keeps finding between his native England and his life in the American Midwest. It's called Lost in the Pond. He's sharing a few of the things he's noticed with us today on Travel with Rick Steves from his home studio in Chicago. Lawrence's website is lostinthepond.com, and he's posting musings on Twitter at lostinthepondus. Lawrence, when I'm traveling, I, especially in Britain, I really love the breakfasts and the old-fashioned fry. But when I get home, first thing I want is a good old American breakfast, two eggs in style, crispy hash browns, English muffin. <laughs> um, I know what kind of jam I want. I know how I want my coffee. Uh, how, how do you compare? The, do you have any warm spot in your heart for the old English breakfast? Or, or do you have you grown to like the American breakfast? 
Uh, I'm 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 a big fan of both. If I'm honest, I do miss the old British breakfast uh, for sure. Even though you know it's quite high in cholesterol, uh, just to be honest about things. Well, don't you um, call it a heart attack on a plate or something like that? Yeah, that's exactly what we refer to it as. Or a, or a plate of cardiac arrest. I've heard that also. Yeah, it's a, a, another good way of putting it. But it, I mean, it's fantastic. But there are certain elements of kind of American breakfast that we do, we don't really have as strongly in Britain. Um, hash browns is less of a phrase you'll see on a menu. I mean, we certainly have them, but not to the extent that you see here. And a big, another big thing is pancakes. You know, we usually mm. reserve pancakes for Pancake Day um, early in February, whereas the United States Pancake Day is every other Sunday. It seems Absolutely. like. Absolutely. I couldn't yeah. imagine limiting pancakes to one day out of the year. My goodness. <laughs> yeah. You know, sometimes I get frustrated when I don't have access to healthy food. And I've been in England a number of times when it just seems like people don't care much about healthy food compared to the United States. Uh, is that a fair assessment or how do you find the States compared to Britain when it comes to uh, nutrition? It's it's a difficult one that because I think that I think we do care about healthy food and we we care about it from the point of view of cultivating our own healthy food, um, but certain kind of habits and I think um, products that have been marketed to us partly from the United States of America have sort of um, encouraged a perhaps a less healthy way of eating. I mean, last time I checked. Britain is is starting to gain a little bit on the United States in terms of obesity rates, for example, whereas before we always just thought that was an American thing, you know, and um, recent studies have suggested that, that that's not necessarily true. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Lawrence Brown. Lawrence, I could talk to you all day about the quirky differences between Britain and America. Can you leave us with just a little bit of British slang? How would you describe what a wonderful time you just had talking with me? I would say that I had a brilliant chin wag with you, Rick. Well, I'm gobsmacked at how much fun you just had. I just had a bloody good time. And if we can do it again, let's, how do you say go crazy? Let's. Oh, goodness. Um, what, what's your equivalent of pedal to the metal? I think uh, full steam ahead. Full steam ahead. It sounds mm -hmm. like something from the Industrial Revolution, 19th Victorian England. I can almost imagine it is. All right. Nice talking with you, Lawrence. Best wishes. You too, Rick. Thanks for having me. travel restrictions gave us time to explore the world online. But when it comes to experiencing the greatest art in the world, you just can't beat being there in person. Gene Openshaw, the co-author of my art book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, joins us now for a look at the value of art in C2. Travel plus art. That's always a winning formula for a great trip. A little art can really spice up your travels, especially when you see it right in its original setting, where the artist designed it to be seen, and that's in situ. Here to talk with me about that is my friend and co-author, Gene Openshaw. Hi, Rick. So, Gene, what exactly is art in situ? Well, I always think of, you know, the famous Trevi Fountain? Sure. Well, the artists who did that, they obviously knew exactly where their statues would stand. 
and they knew exactly what effect they'd have on whoever walked by. And if you've traveled at all, you know that the art that you see on your trip is so much more powerful when you're right there than when you just see it in an art book. Hmm. That's seeing the art in its home location in situ. It's kind of travel's uh, secret sauce. I guess it's like, uh, for me, a bratwurst tastes better in a Bavarian beer hall. I couldn't have said it better. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's a great example of art in situ, one I know you're very familiar with, so picture it with me. Let's say you're in Florence, in the very center, right at the Duomo. It's got the big, huge red and white dome. Okay, I'm there. You've been to every museum in town, the Uffizi. You've seen a million Madonnas. Yeah, they can start to all look the same after a couple of days. And so you're done with art, and you start walking down the main street. Mm. So you're you're passing by shops and people. Gelato. Gelato. And you Mm. realize you're walking down the exact same street that Michelangelo and Donatello did. Suddenly, there's a small church on your right. It's right across from the gelato shop. That's that's the (laughs) Or San Michele. I know that church The church called Or San Michele. It's decorated on the outside with statues, and one of them, St. Mark, is actually by Donatello. So this is, Donatello designed it, carved it to go right there, in situ. In situ. Okay. Now comes the best part. You go around to the back door. You leave the busy street behind, and you step inside the church. Okay. What do you see? Nothing. It's all dark in here. (laughs) After that. Okay. Oh, no. Okay. Here we go. There's candles. Yeah, there's candles. There's some ladies kneeling and praying. They're sitting at the pews. Oh, I can smell the incense. Ah, yes. You're clearly immersed in the full in situ experience. All five senses are at work. And now you see what those worshipers are praying to. It's an altarpiece. It's a massive marble Altarpiece. It's like a church within a church. Yes. And on that altarpiece, what do you see? Surrounded by all those candles and those pillars, it's the painting of a Madonna. Yes. It's a very famous Madonna, though you've probably never heard of it. It's by Bernardo Daddy, but who cares? But it is one of the most beautiful ones I've ever seen because, you know, I like it because it's not in a museum. Exactly. Because you're seeing it exactly where it was meant to be in, in C2. Gene, I can see why travelers should really make a point of seeing art in its original setting. It just makes it come alive. If I was the painter, that's where I'd want my art to be appreciated. When you're right there, you'd swear you can almost see Donatello's statue moving. You can almost hear that Madonna speaking. Mm, I can almost smell the bratwurst grilling. <laughs> Gene, it's fun <laughs> riffing on culture with you. It's always a great reminder that a little art and history can add a whole new dimension to your travels. Grazie. Last night I dreamed about you I dreamed that you were riding On a blood red painted pony Up where the heavens were dividing And the angels turned ashes You came tumbling with them to the earth So far Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley. We get promotion support from Sheila Gerzoff, website support from Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks for studio help this week to Hawaii Public Radio and the UC Berkeley Advanced Media Studios, and to Keith Stickelmeyer for reading our listener travel haiku. You can send us your own haiku and find out more about our guests at ricksteves.com slash radio.
Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share the highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in a hundred essays. If you love Europe, too, this is four decades of greatest hits in 400 pages, made to order to stoke your travel dreams. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com.